Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Hello, everybody. Welcome again to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. This is Dr. Casey Patrick, and today we've got one of our favorite topics, favorite things to do here on the podcast over time. We've sort of prided ourselves in doing a little bit of myth-busting when it's appropriate, and we have a special guest. Louis Fernage is a local, or I guess soon-to-be local, transplanted EMS uh, EM physician here in the area, and... Uh, my medical director, Rob Dixon, is here. Thank you guys for joining us. Good afternoon, Casey. Good afternoon. And so we've talked about some ideas for podcasts in the office over the past couple months. And we keep a whiteboard in case anybody wonders how high tech we manage this thing. We write in a black marker on a whiteboard and make little check boxes. It's very, very high tech. And we've had some ideas that have been swirling around that we wanted to sort of touch on. Some of these were more myths than others, but just some some topics that have come up that probably don't lend themselves to an entire episode. So we're gonna take them one by one, do a couple minutes on each, and just talk about how things were in 2010 or 2005, and then how they are in 2022. We could have done the same thing back in 2004 or so when you and I were in training. We'll probably continue doing this for the rest of our careers. And really, as an emergency medicine provider, whether you're a, a paramedic, an emergency nurse, emergency physician, advanced practice provider, this really is the essence of being up to date. It's looking at the data, the literature, standard practice, and watching how it evolves. Because if I'm practicing the same way that I trained, I'm going to be out of date in a lot of a lot of areas. You too? And you trained really, really well. I'm just going to put a plug in for our residency. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, Robin. You don't want to anger the residency gods here. No, but no, we're trained really well. But you're right. It evolves, right? I mean, look at how CPR has evolved. Resuscitation has evolved, right? We're less drugs and more just the simple stuff, right? Keep it simple. Well, and we'll Good look compressions. at We'll look at number one and two on the list, and they will definitely have changes from, from our training. And yeah. we're going to talk first and foremost about one that is probably not a stranger to anyone. This is one that we've definitely moving in this direction. And this is the idea of spinal immobilization versus motion restriction. I did take a patient on a backboard this past weekend and I wanted to throw the board out the window of the emergency department, uh, but it also extends to the cervical spine. So I'm going to let Lewis kind of talk through some of the, the data that exists without going too deeply in the weeds on why spinal immobilization is probably a false tenet to begin with, number one. And number two, is there any evidence that it really helps when we try to do it? And who should we be targeting for C callers in the field? I think that's probably a three-part question. For yeah, for sure. Um, and I think I want to piggyback off of the fact that uh, what's wonderful about emergency medicine is as a specialty, we're the ones who are the f uh, always the um, foremost physicians, I think, that want to question how things have been done. We don't have as much of that dogma. And so that's what really appeals to me from, uh, from, from a professional standpoint. And I think we need to just bring that, um, bring it to EMS as well too. So specifically from a um, C-spine standpoint, there's been just more and more uh, evidence that shows that um, we're actually causing harm, right? We're keeping people in these uncomfortable positions for 
um, for way too long um, because when we put something on, we want to make sure we can take it off, right? So you're going to need x-rays, um, you're going to need C um, CT scanners for head injuries, C-spine injuries, things like that. So um, that person, that elderly patient is going to be on there for much longer. Um, you get um, pressure sores, you get aspiration because now you've got airway concerns because that patient can't be rolled or can't control their airway anymore because they're strapped to, the, to that board. So we know that there's definitely harm to keeping them uh, in that position or without that, that, um, that mobility in case something were to come up. And, um, and when we look at studies, there's just no, um, uh, mechanistically even putting, strapping you down to a board and keeping your neck down actually doesn't keep your spine that in line or keeps it in that position very effectively anyways, with the tools that we have available. So there's not, not a lot of benefit, there's harm. So figuring out how um, and also how to make sure that we safely don't miss someone who has an injury, I think, becomes the, the, the more important question. Um, and so we have literature that supports um, how to try to streamline that process because we also don't want this to be onerous. We don't want this to take too much time, but we obviously don't want to miss these, miss these injuries. And so that's where certain um, tools like uh, the Nexus Criteria uh, Canadian CTC spine in the ER setting have come to be and, and help guide that um, clinical management. But um, I think that um, for all of us who work both in the ED and um, pre-hospitally with uh, paramedics, with EMS, um, I think there's a very easy case for us to make about the fact that Nexus um, specifically is a tool that can be safely applied pre-hospitally and, and help stratify how high risk a patient is to possibly have a C-spine injury and for whom we need to be a little bit more cautious. Sure. And which one of those rules do you like? You, you mentioned a couple, Nexus and the Canadian rule. We have kind of a mi an admixture here because we had a few fallouts. It's just kind of through case review and we looked at it and added some of that. We have a little mixture of Nexus and Canadian. What do you like to do in your practice? Um, in the ER, I prefer the Canadian rule um, just because we we miss less fractures. However, the data um, the data shows that the fractures that are missed from a nexus standpoint, you know, you can still have small chip fractures. You can um, those are fractures that that might be missed, but they're not ones that would lead to a significant neurologic deficit. Um, and more importantly. Um, I think that that's clinically what's most relevant to, to the patients. And, right. and it's easily operational, I, th I think that's. And so if you, in to review the Nexus rule, there's some components of it, right? And you have to have no midline tenderness. You have to have a normal neurologic exam. You have to be able to communicate with the patient so the patient can't be uber impaired. And then they can't have this pesky distracting injury. And that is open to whether that, that could be a hangnail or it could be an open fracture wooden piece. So that's really up to interpretation. That's the, the basis of this, the nexus criteria. Um, and to add on the Canadian criteria, there's this, I won't get in the weeds with it, but it's mechanism and age. At MCHD, we just added age. Why? Because we were missing cervical spine fractures in people with cognitive illness that we didn't pick up that they had cognitive illness. And when you have dementia, some other cognitive impairment, some of that is a spectrum and it could be quite mild unless you really are, are an expert at questioning the patient. You may not pick up that they have a cognitive impairment. And as part of that impairment, they lose not only with their cognitive ability, they lose their sense of pain, right? That's who we miss cervical fractures in or all fractures in is drunks 
and people with cognitive issues. So those are the ones that we tend to, to collar up a little bit more. And I'll, I'll take the blame. I was probably one of the more vocal Canadian rule followers that said, hey, we need age in here. I, I use age in my practice. I use rotation in my practice. So I, I'm, I'm a Canadian C-spine follower as well. That said, the other piece of this entire discussion, and it really goes through all of these and, and really what Lewis started with, and that is as emergency physicians, I remember getting uh, Jerry and Rick on CD back a long time ago, uh, and they prodded and poked at everything we thought we knew from from TPA to C callers and everything in between. And, and I love our specialty for that, but we also have to realize that we practice in an environment to where standard of care is, is still standard of care. And I've had a lot of medics ask for the, you know, do we need the C callers anymore? I know that there's some uh, Australian agencies that have removed C callers from their, you know, hard C callers from their protocols. I don't know of any here in the States. And if we had a missed cervical spine injury, the fact of the matter is, you would have a lineup of expert witnesses to say that cervical spine motion restriction or mobilization would have been standard of care in this case. So I, I think we have to mention that. I don't want to get into a medical legal. That's always a depressing way to practice, but cervical spine motion restriction is still, I would say, accepted standard of care. I will bet you in 15 years, 10 years, they probably we probably won't have hard seat collars on the truck but we're just not there yet. And I don't know, I'll speak for you. I don't know that we want to be the first agency here at MCHD without hard cervical collars. You can go ahead and chime in. Now. I will just uh, skip the inappropriate analogy that came to mind, uh, but I would agree. I think that cervical collars serve to uh, do nothing in the sober person with a broken neck. Sober people with a broken neck, know their neck is broken. They do not move their neck because their neck is broken and they're worried about their broken neck. People who are impaired or cognitively impaired or chemically impaired don't know not to move their neck. So it is a little bit of a good reminder for them, I think, not to move your neck. Um, that being said, what Dr. Fornach says is exactly correct. You know, there's some downsides with you're laying people flat, they're emetogenic. You may need to intubate them, remember, these are hard cervical collars. If you're going to intubate the patient, remove the front part of the collar and hold in line, finish the intubation, then put the anterior part of the collar back on. Don't work against yourself here, particularly in those six subset of patients. But I think that it is a good tool in, in a certain subset. I would agree with Casey. It's not going away anytime soon in this country. So be very precise with who you put them on and know the folks that potentially will benefit. I, I, can I sum it up pretty good there? Yep. Is that it? Yep. And I think I, I absolutely agree uh, with your point. Um, it's really the folks who, for whom, especially this nexus or this shorter um, scale has not worked are elderly folks. And I would argue that, you know, they're ones who um, with dementia have an altered mental state or um, can't communicate, which is, you know, falls under this category. And those are the ones that I, that, that I've seen have injuries miss and they come in from a fall and you know they're not complaining of anything and you 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 work them up and turns out their neck is broken <laughs> got a um, c3 yep so let's let's change gears from necks and talk about some other things that i'm probably a little bit embarrassed about some of the uh large volume resuscitation that i've participated in in my career i guess not embarrassed it was accepted when i was a resident we'd take a busted spleen move them up to the icu and 
pound them with fluids. And we'd come out the next morning, post-call, turnover, and talk about the 11th liter that we gave on that busted spleen. And so, uh, or the septic patient, or, you know, insert whichever shocky patient you want. We're going to talk in this one about septic shock patients. And this is the idea that there is some benefit to giving a certain amount of fluid before we initiate presser therapy. And this one came about from our push dose data. And I was, uh, we've talked about our push dose study on the, uh, on the podcast before, so I won't belabor it. But one of the, the coolest parts for me was when we were talking about this, there was a lot of medic questions about, hey, do we need to give a certain amount of fluids before we progress to vasopressors? Are we going to give it enough fluids? This idea that you should fill the tank to some point before you start pressers. I know that's kind of a common uh, teaching point out there. And I didn't know what we'd found. We, we gave our push dose patients about three quarters of a liter of fluid at the same time we gave push dose here at MCHC. So that was pretty cool. But there's more and more push, it seems like, in the hospitals to recognize these septic patients and to send the lactate as soon as you can. You got to send a repeat lactate. You got to give 30 cc per kilo bolus. And when you really look at the data and look at the way that the literature is moving and there's holes in these studies and there's we could talk for a week on this subject and we're not going to put everybody to sleep. But the gist of the matter is, is that probably doesn't really matter how much fluids you get before you initiate pressors in a shock patient and 30 cc per kilo is probably a little bit much. Talk a little bit about the, the study itself, uh, Lewis, and kind of how we should approach it as a pre-hospital provider, you've got a patient, they come from the local nursing home, decreased mental status, you know, very clear cut patient, temp of 102, heart rates 130, uh, initial blood pressure is 80. So you've got a shock index of, you know, 1.5 plus. Should we worry about fluids and pressures in the order or should we all hands on deck? Yeah, I think it's important to remember that, um, that septus in itself um, even though we have tried to simplify it and protocolize it, um, is very much so a multifactorial uh, pathophysiological process. Um, and so I, it, it sounds like we're really going into um, a phase of care where there's going to be both a concurrent fluid resuscitation process and, uh, and presser, presser use as well, too. And it sounds like there's going to be less and less of that emphasis on, on the number for fluid resuscitation. Um, there are a lot of, uh, I, I think there's probably a large component of where we came up with numbers because these things needed to be uh, easily measurable from a quality standpoint within the hospitals. And, and I think that that may be, that may be part of this, um, uh, of this, these drivers, but but again, um, it really is. Uh, there, there are studies now that are starting to come out that people who may have not gone as many as much fluid, but their hypotension was still addressed with some of that, uh, some of the concurrent use of pressors, they're doing as well, if not better. And uh, one of the studies that uh, that I felt was reasonable to, to to bring up and touch on is they've done that in France. Obviously, a little bit of a, a different EMS system altogether because it's spearheaded or has a very large physician presence there. So again, not necessarily 100% directly applicable to here, but I think that they're they're helping to continue to bridge that gap between the hospital setting and EMS and bringing up the fact now that. Um, again, the patients in this study, in these studies who got less fluids and maybe more pressors earlier on, again, did better from a, a mortality standpoint, didn't stay in the hospital as long. 
um, and had less negative consequences. And I think that it's or a good analogy is comparing this fluid administration to, for example, oxygen administration uh, with patients, right? Um, 10, 20 years ago, uh, chest pain, just put them on a bunch of oxygen. Doesn't matter if their oxygen, their SPO2 is over 100%, just put it on, they'll be, they'll feel more comfortable. You're taking care of them, right? If it's 99, let's make it 100, let's, baby. Exactly, let's, let's, let's shoot for A plus here. Um, and so I think that, that this is a similar situation that we're getting into where we're realizing that, look, yes, there's always gonna be dehydration. You've had a fever for 10 hours and you haven't been drinking because you're lying in bed. Well, yeah, you're gonna be a little bit dehydrated. Give them some fluids for sure. But if that blood pressure is still staying low while that while that's infusing, again, we're we're fortunate enough now that it is standard of care to to have that presser that easily available presser in the back of the truck. Why why not use it in judicious amounts? Yeah, the way I explain it to medics is we're we're going to get there. The patient that Casey just described to you, their next pressure is going to be fifty, but you can pick your whatever bad number you want to pick. At the end of the day, I would agree. There's the, the evidence is still evolving on this, but to kind of sum up what I'm hearing here, you know, it's sepsis is a complex multifactorial disease. We, we always thought, yes, we should give all these fluids. Is there a prescribed number that you have to hit before you start a presser? Probably not. And the fact of the matter is in most of these patients, they're going to get a presser at some point, just mix it up and give it give it to them, give it concurrently, and don't do not do everything in, in sequence, do it in parallel is what I'm hearing from and, you. And we're talking about the obvious ones? Yeah, they, they, yeah these are not soft calls. They're gonna have insensible losses, they're gonna be dehydrated, so they're gonna need fluids, but more and more evidence, both in the ED and now even in the pre-hospital setting suggests that earlier pressors are better. So I would I would be even more inclined to get, get a couple lines and have a bolus going in one and a norepinephrine drip in the other. Speaking directly to the MCHD medics out there, obviously this is going to involve you having vasopressor capabilities in your truck. If you're a non-MCHD listener, maybe this is the case for, for push dose. If you don't have pumps to administer norepinephrine, we're very lucky uh, here in Montgomery yeah. County. I'm sure more to come on that one, and you never know. We may be back here in 18 months debunking the 30 per kilo myth. I don't. Yeah, I, I don't want anything. I don't doctor, want anything heresy. to do with that one. Staying, right, staying away. Let's <laughs> let's talk about scenetrons and trauma. And boy, oh boy, is this one one that is. If it shares anything in common with our last one, it's that trauma patients are exceedingly heterogeneous just like septic patients. If you try to make something cookbook for something that is complex, you're going to run into gaps and holes. There's just no way around it. We talked about airway patency and airway protection and, and intubation decisions. Well, if you try to decide who to intubate based on GCS of eight, you're gonna run into trouble. If you just try to decide how to care for a multi-complex sepsis patient with a four checkbox cookbook protocol, you're probably gonna be in trouble, just like trying to make clear-cut rules for blunt trauma patients. These are all over the place. Is there a traumatic brain injury? Do you have a pelvic fracture? Do you have a liver? Do you have a spleen? Do you have you know small bowel injury? Is it penetrating? Is it blunt? I or is mean, it both? So a mixture. So yeah. take it from here, Lewis, and talk a little bit about the golden hour scene times and where our focus should be and how to take this this complex trauma patient and boil it down to where are decision points in the truck, in the field, on the concrete, you know, on the interstate, and how can we take this 
this literature data and translate it into foundational at least guidelines. I mean, there's probably never going to be a rule for these these folks. They're way too complicated. But where should our foundations lie in these patients? So uh, I think from a, a data standpoint, um, there's there's a correlation that can't be argued with the fact that shorter seen times lead to better outcomes. Again, getting them um, getting to definitive care as soon as possible is going to be the most important. You know, you're um, drop the lung, you have a perforated bowel. Um, there are a lot of things that need some type of surgical intervention and um, dif for definitive care. You just need to be in the hospital to get everything you need at that point. Um, you can go ahead and chime in right now. I know you want to talk about it. Talk about police transports. I know you're going to chime in with it. When you look at all of the mass casualty incidents. Right. I mean, a lot of people that jumped that were thrown in the back of a police car and driven right to the hospital did better. And the, the fact of the matter is that scene times do matter. Transport times may not matter. So we may not that if we look across our system at a red lights and siren versus a non-emergent response, there's not as much difference as everyone would think. It's a couple of minutes or less than two minutes difference. I think it's way more important to preserve that scene time uh, fidelity than it is to, to drive crazy on the way to the hospital, which I have been uh, part of in the back, right? Trying to do interventions in the back. It's not only dangerous for the patient, it's quite dangerous for our providers. And these, these law enforcement transport, private vehicle transport studies, this data comes out of every MCI that we have, Las Vegas. There's a study from Philadelphia with Philadelphia law enforcement. There's lots of these out there, not to, to go off into the journal club weeds. There are some caveats, and we've talked about these on the podcast before, EPIC being one of the big ones. If you have a trauma patient with a traumatic brain injury and they have a systolic less than 90 or a SAT less than 90, at any point during their EMS care, their mortality rises. You put them together and it rises 13 times plus. So this is not the idea. I want to debunk the scoop and run sort of myth here and you know high flow diesel and those sort of things which minimizes our role in the field it's not that we don't have a role it's just that we don't need to be monkeying around with things that don't help the patient so we need to concentrate on access blood pressure oxygenation and get them to the surgeon like lewis said because I, as long as i stand there i'm not going to be able to fix their their aorta or, or their, uh, you know, their. And I would say the good providers that I see do it in our service do that in the truck with wheels moving. Yep. You know, they rapidly extricate that patient. Good use for a longboard. Normally on a longboard, perfectly fine. However, you have to extricate them, extricate them, evacuate them from the scene, get in, monitoring, support, uncover, run your primary survey, your secondary survey. Hit, you know, after that primary survey. You should be putting some diesel on the road. All these interventions can be done in route. So it's complex. It's it's more complex than high flow diesel versus stay in play. That creates a binary, and nothing in medicine. And I, I'm not trying to simplify it too much. If you you know there are tons of times where in your clinical judgment, it's an isolated head who's now vomited in their mouth and lost their airway patency. At what point do you? slow the process down and, and put a tracheal tube in there to protect that, you know, and that's a judgment call of how much time are you giving up versus do you think it's an isolated head? What's your surety level of that? 
and how confident are you that you can carry out that procedure safely in the field versus the patient that's shot in the chest with a sat of 81 that is going to need to be intubated in the hospital because their lung has a hole in it which is causing them to be hypoxic that endotracheal tube is not going to solve any problem there so that's one where you load and you go you get an iv in route and that patient needs a thoracotomy we can't do that in the field so those are two very separate cases where I would say I'm intubating your vomiting head injured patient, I am loading and going with the uh, with the penetrating trauma patient. Would you agree? Lewis? Yeah, uh, and I think that so to your to your point, Dr. Dixon, um, the data from law enforcement transport definitely help us to to further justify this this need to not have an extended scene time. But I would want to also make sure we underline the fact that we are obviously able and capable of providing some very important, crucial interventions. Again, uh, either airway monitoring, if it's necessary, supplemental oxygen, if they're hypoxic with a, a brain injury, um, arguably fluids for, for hypotension. But I, I guess that's also oh, again, that's a be different a very, nugget to uncover. I know, doctor, I know, I know that peel back the peel back the uh, the uh, the uh, layers there. No, I mean, we can keep going. Another podcast. We, we keep, already argued this. We keep going. TXA. I think TXA, yeah, TXA and the trauma patient. Which, but I think that Access. that mainly is an in route type thing, not mm -hmm. non scene type thing. And I think that that's well, that's the takeaway, right? It's short scene times, just because you're in the back of the truck, and even no, not even necessarily running lights and sirens, create a, as safe an environment to do those interventions. Still, again, we have that privilege of we can reverse those life-threatening conditions versus, you know, a law enforcement officer who, again, has a very valuable role to play in pre-hospital scene safety, care as well to a certain degree. Um, we, we need to still be there and, and, and help out in those situations as well, too. But we're there for the patient who has those reversible, um, um, clearly threatening, life-threatening, about-to-deteriorate conditions. Um, to, to buy them time to get to the surgeon and fix it definitively as well too. So couldn't agree uh, more. A, hy a hybrid of the two. In the end, a common answer for complicated problems, it's complicated. Yeah, exactly. And we have to be good clinicians and we have to make second to second judgment calls and no protocol or rules probably ever going to change that with, with complex uh, polytrauma patients. The next one, we're going to change gears a little bit because I know that I am not a superstitious person at all. Me neither. And so I love to walk in the ED and look at the charge nurse and look at the board when there's only a couple people in the waiting room and everybody in the department's discharged and say, like, man, it's a slow day around here. And I get fiery eyeballs, uh, pitchforks, uh, rotten eggs. No one likes me in the ER because I am I just – Figure if I'm going to say it and get it out there and get it over with. And, it's quiet. And Dr. Forlach has, has come to your rescue. He's going to give you the definitive literature-based answer right here on this podcast. Yeah, we've talked about pressors early in shock and necessity of spinal immobilization. But there are people out there that are doing the Lord's work in the realm of Absolutely. important, yeah. impactful research. And they decided to say, let's look and see what the word quiet does to your volume and if you ask er charge nurses out there they'll tell you as soon as you say quiet or slow what happens the bus lets off i'm not a believer but what's the evidence say yeah so actually interestingly enough um initially uh looking into this i not not a not a necessarily very superstitious person uh as well but there were some 
papers out there that said that this was a thing and um, very, very surprising. But the more that you drill down into actually the methodology of those studies, they were, they were pretty terrible. There was a lot of bias in it. Um, and fortunately, other people went back, did slightly better studies there. And um, again, it's completely random. There's, there's no clear association there. Um, Just like a full moon or... Same thing, full moon. Know, cats looked, walking in front of you or some nope. other superstitious type nope. mojo. No, no, no. So you, go, you heard it here. I mean, and y'all have all heard this. I know I've now I've, the Twitter trolls are going to come after you. Yeah, I know, doctor. right? I, I've talked to our crews. I know how it is on full moon nights. I've worked a, a lot of nights. I've worked nights most of my career, and those full moon nights, everybody talks about the werewolves and the vampires and everything that comes out. The evidence will tell us: full moons don't matter. Saying quiet doesn't matter either. So, next shift I'm on. Anybody's listening out there that gets the pleasure of uh, being my charge nurse, which I'm sure they're probably like, oh, God, he's back. I'm going to just start saying quiet, quiet, quiet over and over and over. No, he's not. And uh, you just have <laughs> he's, to, he's a smarter doctor than that. Rule number one, get along with the charge you'll, nurse. You'll just have to deal with that. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fast forward through a couple for time's sake because there is one at the end of the list that I really want to get to because this is one that we might even come back to. So I'm going to move to norepinephrine and post-ROSC pressure choice and this is one that we've talked about on the podcast before we have norepinephrine here at mchd as our presser of choice and we talk about it as our presser of choice because most undifferentiated shock in the pre-hospital setting is sepsis and norepinephrine for the evidence today is the winner there so we say hey if we don't know what it is because we don't have time to figure it out yet odds are it's sepsis so let's go with the winner there norepinephrine except in cases of anaphylaxis or potentially bradycardia where we need a little more, uh, little more rate push, so epinephrine in those cases. And then someone always asks the question, well, what about post-ROSC? Is there a better pressor post-ROSC, norepinephrine or epinephrine? Because we have both. And the answer for me for the last five years has been, we, d- we don't know. Well, maybe we do. And maybe there's more evidence than I realized. I get my... Uh, I get my... my Literature sources come from a wide range of spots. Spoonfeed is one that I really like. It's an email, daily email, um, that sometimes I decide to read them and sometimes I don't, but they're pretty easy to manage and nice little paragraph or two-point breakdowns. And when this one came through my email feed a couple weeks ago, I didn't know these studies and I didn't realize I saw it, you know, norepinephrine better post-ROSC. Well, yeah, how? And is there really any good data? And man, it's a little more solid than I expected. So tell the listeners about some of this data, Lewis, and sort of if you had a post-ROS patient, would you go epi or would you go norepi now? Is this enough to move the needle for you? I don't know that it moves the needle 100%, but it's definitely intriguing from my standpoint. Um, so I think that the desire, the question that folks had about um, continuing to use epi post-ROS really sounds to me like it's more of a theoretical benefit, right? Um, EpiWorks uh, addresses contractility rate um, uh, more so than norepi. Um, plus, again, you just resuscitated someone you've been using epinephrine. I mean, it, it seems like you continue to use what you were just using, right? Like, that, that makes sense. It helped fix the problem during the first half, so it must still be good after. And I think, that's the, I think that's the winner and why our paramedics here at MCHD want to stick with epinephrine it's because that's what they've got out in their hand and it's convenient i think it's more of a convenience issue we can go into to you know paramedic two and whether epi works or not for 
out of hospital cardiac arrest? And the answer from that one for neuro intact outcome is no, but it's cumbersome to switch medicines midstream. So what, what, what were some of the, the data points here and, and would you change your practice based on this, these, these few papers? I know these weren't perfect. This isn't a, you know, someone who's done a little bit of dabbling in, in dealing with cardiac arrest research, talk about a muddy heterogeneous group of patients. I have the utmost respect for anybody who lives in this world because it is amazingly complex and difficult. So no, uh, no stones thrown. Um, but this was kind of a meta-analysis type uh, evaluation. And it looks like to me that there's a pretty significant benefit to norepinephrine as compared to epinephrine in this group of data. Yeah. So I think what we need to keep in mind, again, going back to physiology, is that people will do better from a neurological standpoint if we can keep their brain perfused um, safely. So um, it's it's about having a safe way to increase to increase blood pressure. Um, I don't think it matters it matters as much how we get there until we start thinking about the side effects of the medicines we we're using. And um, to the benefit of epinephrine, yes, it is very much so kind of you know hit hit the heart hard again with that increased contractility. So um, the problems with the problem with epinephrine is that it also increases. Um, uh, the likelihood of ventricular arrhythmias and now you have you're giving it to a heart that has an area of it that in, that that just wants to be more arrhythmogenic as well too so you start running into more of those those issues more of those side effects whereas norepinephrine has less of that uh will cause less of those problems so um it seems like that may be where we start seeing the differences in terms of again there's less side effects during that recovery process for that initially hypotensive patients when they're put on a norepi drip and then they're admitted and, and monitored in, in the ICUs um, versus versus putting them on epinephrine. And to the point of contractility, um, there's also thoughts of whether or not, and this may be more uh, emergency room applicable than pre-hospital for logistical reasons, but maybe just adding dobutamine um, at that point for a contractility boost. But again, really focusing on just elevating that pressure and making sure we're not doing it with a medicine that's gonna, that's gonna uh, have a scorched earth policy on part of our body that's already been injured. So, and just to be clear, this was uh, some retrospective data that looked at mortality as comparing post-ROSC, norepi versus epi. The norepi folks did better. This is not a randomized controlled trial. That, that doesn't exist in these folks. God bless whoever takes that one on. But just to go back to, to some of Lewis's points about the physiology difference between norepi and epi is norepi is more of a vasopressor and less of an inotrope chronotrope, whereas epinephrine has a little bit more inotropy and chronotropy. So it's going to flog that stunned or dead heart a little bit more. And our end goal, really, post-ROSC, is to perfuse the brain. And if you're acting more as a vasopressor, then you're going to have more brain perfusion at the expense of your fingers and toes. I'll trade my fingers and toes for my brain. I'm okay with that. So theoretically, it makes sense. This data, there's tons of ways to poke holes in the studies that got us here. But theoretically and evidence-wise, I personally will put my post-ROSC patients on norepinephrine preferentially now, knowing that this is the question is not answered. 
but I feel like there's a whole lot of smoke. And if there's smoke, there's fire and probably ought to get the extinguisher out. What do you think? No, I mean, I would agree, Casey. I mean, look at how our practice has changed just in our careers of pressers, right? I mean, norepinephrine was in but before we started practicing medicine, then it was out and dopamine was in. And now we've seen a shift of dopamine essentially out of EMS and out of the ED essentially. And norepinephrine really is the pressure of choice except for anaphylaxis. We really want it in anaphylaxis for that beta effect, that smooth muscle relaxant of the, of the lung tissue as well. Dopaminosaurus rex. It's, yeah. ex- it's extinct for now. Maybe there's one running around on an island out there, Jurassic World or something we don't I know I still about. hear it referred to every now and then. But, I, I, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's one that's gone for today. So I, I don't know that any of these discussion points that we talked about today, other than the quiet word and the full moon, are fully disproven. That's the beauty, going back to the very beginning of, of what Dr. Farnage talked about, and that is we are, I believe, trained as skeptics, and we're trained to, to look a little deeper and to make sure that we're following the evidence the best that we can. I believe the medics at MCHD have probably heard me talk enough to know that that's the way that, that I practice. But at some point, you have to operate with incomplete data. That's what we do all day, every day, and use foundational pieces to make difficult decisions so are we going to change our protocol here at mchd to use norepinephrine primarily in post-ross patients we're not gotten that far down the road i will in my practice uh, you know it's going to be a judgment call for you in the truck but we may go that way we haven't had that final discussion yet that's that's the fun part of this job is those kind of discussions and really deciding where we're going to take the practice within the service and what we're going to base that on, and then how are we going to structure our quality system to follow those patients? And how are we going to measure it? How are we going to measure it, track it, and then improve and re-educate, remediate if we need to? So that's the that's the uh, it's kind of where the rubber meets the road here. So we've uh, hit our time limit. I'd really like to thank Lewis for joining us and for helping put this one together as a fellow EMS EM doc, having someone else in the area that cares about the things that we care about and that is interested in educating y'all the listeners the 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 medics out there is always a plus from our standpoint and we appreciate the the collaboration and the effort that you put in anything you want to add before we wrap up i was going to say happy ems week now it's the the second week of may and the third week of may is ems week so i'll take this opportunity in case i'm not on next week to thank everybody for the great work that our folks do at mchd all of our fro's and really across the nation and the listeners across the world. Thank you. Well, we'll work on getting this one edited and out quickly so it can be time appropriate. As always, if you have questions or comments, please email us, podcast at mchd-tx.org. Leave us a like or review only if you're going to make it five stars. If you're going to be four stars, we just, just leave that one in the uh, draft uh, you can leave folder. it in Dr. Jarvis's podcast. Uh, no, well, we that not. other guy. No, no, no. <laughs> I will say that we are we are approaching 200 reviews on iTunes. So help us get to 200. Go to iTunes. Leave us a review. I don't know why 200 is important. I just like round numbers. So get us to 200. Thanks again for joining us, Lewis. We'll have him back again soon. Thanks everybody for listening. Have a great rest of your day. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod and Competech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.